This evening I'd like to talk about cultivating a climate of awakening. And I'd like to start by sharing with you a few lines I came across recently which seemed particularly apt. As watermelons and meditation students grow pretty much the same way. Long periods of sitting till they ripen and grow, all juicy inside, but when you knock them on the head to see if they're ready, sounds like nothing's going on. (laughs) I read this and it struck something of a chord of response in me. That indeed we have long periods of sitting, long periods of walking, long periods of silence, apparently doing very little. It would probably be quite rare if we were questioned at the end of a sitting or a walking or even at the end of a whole retreat that we would be able to articulate a list of what we had accomplished or what we had achieved in that sitting. It might be pretty much difficult to find some hard evidence or definitive signposts, no matter how much we long for them of what we'd managed to get rid of, or what we'd managed to gain, or what kind of progress we'd made. In fact, we might be tempted to say, nothing's going on. I'm not getting anywhere. Nothing is happening. We kind of hope that we're ripening and growing. But in the absence of signposts or milestones, Sometimes that feels almost like a a leap of faith, a kind of intuitive trust. And yet we're certainly juicy inside. How many thoughts have you had today? How many sensations in your body have you felt that speak to you about the life of your body, about the life of all bodies? How many sights, sounds, tastes, touches have you received as you've moved through the day? And how juicy has been your response to all of them? You might think of how many different voices, inner voices, have come to visit you today. You know, the liking, the disliking, the wanting, the not wanting, the voice of the judge, the blamer, the whispering, the shouting, sometimes the voice of doubt, the voice of the critic, the voice of the commander, the voice of the strategist. This is the whole, our whole inner world of response and reaction. And we find ourselves not only listening to, of course, to our own inner voices, but how many other people have visited you today when you sat? The people you brought with you on your retreat, your friends and enemies, your colleagues, your childhood playmates, your lovers, your adversaries. And how many feelings have you felt today? Anxiety? Boredom's a favorite. 
joy, fear, aversion. We understand that we are invited here to be present, to take our seat in mindfulness amid all the clamoring voices and sensory information. We understand that we're invited to receive them all, to be touched, to be sensitive, to listen, to be awake to all of them. We also hear over and over that awakening is not going to be found outside of this body and mind and heart and life. And that the practice is really actually so simple. To open our heart, to be awake to all that is offered to us in every unique moment. I think part of us, you know, probably does accept this. But especially on the first days, there's also a good part of us that often actually would really like to flee from this moment. Would really like, in a way, to be anywhere but where we are with anything but with what is offered. Most people, before they come on a retreat, do have, you know, at least one or two thoughts about what their retreat is going to be like. You know, we've read and listened to the stories, the horror stories, <clears throat> and also the stories of rapture and bliss and breakthrough. Sometimes we have at least one or two thoughts based on our own experience of retreat. So we come expecting. Sometimes we expect agony and sometimes we expect ecstasy. For most people have at least a few expectations. Now, of course, you know, you've probably heard a thousand times before that it's really very helpful to come into a retreat with no expectations. But personally, I often think this is a little bit naive. Um, in fact, expectations can even be helpful. I mean, they get us here rather than to a beach in Miami. You know, and in a real way, expectations at times even articulate some of what we long for, some of what we aspire to, some of the vision that we have of ourselves, our practice. And they can serve an important part in the kind of dedication and the kind of commitment that we bring to our practice. It's actually fine to have expectations, and it's even more fine to be willing to be surprised and to have our expectations overturned. Because we do see that none of us can guarantee what a single sitting or a single walking period would be like. If we could guarantee it, we would probably make a whole variety of choices in our day. We would all love to have more of the ecstasy than the agony. But whether we find ourselves residing in the the heavenly realms of peace and serenity, or whether we find ourselves residing or at least visiting the hell realms of chaos and resistance and turmoil, that's actually secondary in importance. And what's of really primary significance is our willingness to learn.
Our willingness to be awake to where we are, our willingness to deepen in our own capacity on a moment-to-moment level for compassion, for receptivity, for understanding. Meditation is not intended to produce a kind of standard form of experience that we could add to our spiritual portfolio of experiences. Meditation is really intended to very radically, very deeply transform the courses of our heart and mind. It is intended to bring us closer to what is true and real, even though what is true and real may not fit in with our expectations and dreams. I think, you know, it's not unusual in the first day or two of a retreat to feel like you can get sort of too big a dose of reality. You know, it feels sort of undesirable at times. You know, someone once said, you know, if this present moment's supposed to be so good, why do I keep wanting to run away from it? Here we do see, perhaps more and more clearly, that harmony in our lives, that peace in our lives, is actually going to be found through our willingness to embrace the simple truth of each moment. This may, in fact, be the only place where we can find genuine depth and freedom. The first day of a retreat, second day of a retreat, you can count on it. You get a crash course in reality. And we also actually meet and face some of the most essential and potentially transforming life lessons in this first day or two. And a few of those lessons I'd like to reflect on tonight. Lesson number one. (laughs) Everything arises because of conditions. We are not always in control of the conditions that arise. We're not always in control of what appears in our body, our mind, our heart, or our life. Now, did you ask your body to ache today? How many of the thoughts you've experienced today did you actually invite? Did you decide this morning to have an aversive day or an agitated day? Every experience, every feeling, every thought, everything you've heard and sensed today arises because of conditions. The garbage truck in the driveway is a condition for hearing. The demand for utter silence is a condition for aversion. The mind that you might have experienced today entangled in lots of thinking in lots of rehearsing, and lots of remembering. There are conditions for that mind to arise. might be how we spent yesterday. The condition for that mind could even be a whole lifetime of inattention and fantasy and dwelling. Just having a body is actually a condition for experiencing both pleasant sensations and discomfort and unease. Birth is actually a condition for dying. Now, we can do a lot to try and control conditions 
you know, we can put in the earplugs. We can camouflage discomfort through fantasy. Sometimes we can just go to sleep. Mostly the result is further agitation. In California, Spirit Rock, where I teach, um, there's a lot of wild turkeys on the land, actually a very growing population of wild turkeys that threaten to soon outnumber the number of yogis. But anyway, these wild turkeys, what sometimes happens is when the sun is shining there, and it often does, the turkeys kind of meander through the car parks, and the sun shines on the cars. So when the turkeys pass the cars, they see themselves reflected in the bodies, in the paint mark of the cars. And they peck at themselves, which actually means they peck away at the cars, which is a lot easier to have a lot of equanimity and sense of humor about when it's not your car, actually. <laughs> but you see them, I often see them, I walk through the parking lot and there's the turkeys, you know, pecking away, you know, you hear them, they're really ferocious about, about it. You know, and it can go on for ages and ages and ages. The more ferociously they peck, the more agitated and hurt they become. Well, it often makes me think of kind of yogi mind, you know. We want something to go away, you know, and so we kind of do the same thing, you know. We peck at it and, and, and we poke at it and we push it and we, we try and shove it and we get more agitated and more hurt. And there is another way of being. You know, sometimes there's a wisdom in just taking even refuge in our helplessness to control conditions that arise. There's actually real wisdom in that, you know, because acknowledging that we're not in control of conditions sometimes allows us to let go of blame. It's not your fault. But it also empowers us. Taking refuge in, in the helplessness to control conditions doesn't mean becoming passive and despairing. It's actually very empowering. Because we see we can also introduce the conditions of mindful interest, of kindness, of compassion, of attention. These are actually the conditions that we cultivate in our practice. They are the conditions that we cultivate within ourselves and we bring to each moment. There is just this, just this that is right before us, that asks to be taken care of. That is the condition of mindful attention that we introduce. Just this moment, just this sensation, just this thought, just this sound to be taken care of. You know, that may seem very obvious, but it's also so liberating to stop pecking. You know, what difference would it make to the turkeys, you know, if they didn't regard their reflection as an enemy to struggle with, to overcome, to become preoccupied with, or to obsess about? But if they could see their reflection just as a reflection, not solid, not impenetrable, not overpowering, probably much happier turkey. We can learn 
something from this. Hmm? Mindfulness is sometimes said to be a shortcut to happiness. Lesson number two. (laughs) We have a big tendency to draw conclusions and also a tendency to believe in our conclusions as being absolute truth. And this tendency to draw conclusions and to believe in our conclusions to be absolute truth actually endangers, I feel, our well-being. It leads to contractedness and to disconnection, and it exiles us. Our tendency to draw conclusions exiles us from our capacity to learn and our capacity to be surprised. Also, our tendency to draw conclusions somehow actually really does deny the essential reality of change. We are learning in our practice to cultivate a heart and mind of openness of non-dwelling, of non-obsessing. We're learning to stay spacious, to be calm, to be prone, actually, to learning and being surprised. Now, in the midst of the agony, in the midst of the ecstasy, in both, we are often tempted to draw conclusions. I'm a terrible or a simply wonderful meditator. I am as culture of deprivation and alienation, or it's a sanctuary of peace and intimacy. This sitting was a disaster or a sign of advancement. My roommate, my sitting neighbor, the most insensitive boor on the planet, or the most caring and tender person in the world. We see the way that our conclusions kind of signal finality, a closing down. And they don't arrive out of nowhere, they do arrive from somewhere. Many of our conclusions are actually preceded by a certain amount of dwelling, obsessing, preoccupation. You know, we spend a few hours with boredom, perhaps, with agitation or with aversion. We dwell upon them. We, we see some historical conversation or incident revisit us a number of times, and we start to become preoccupied with it. And we see we get agitated. We become agitated. The more that we dwell upon something, the more agitated we become. This is actually not just a theory. You can look at this in your own experience. Today, tomorrow. The more we dwell upon any, any feeling, any thought, any experience, any image, the more contracted we become and the more convinced we become of its truthfulness. One time when I was in Thailand, I was in a monastery, you know, and um, I know people's eyes thought of monasteries as kind of, you know, oasis of peace, serenity. In truth, they're most often the noisiest places in the world. And one of the things about monasteries, and I see IMS is following in this tradition, is that they are almost always under a state of construction. <laughs> you know, so they tend to be really noisy, you know. You know, scaffolding going up, builders coming in, you know, you know, dynamite, we're going to get that this week. You know, there's going to be actually, there's a lot of things going on in monasteries all the time, you know. And I was really annoyed about it, you know, mostly because I thought it was an obstacle to practice. You know, but it wasn't just when it was happening that I got annoyed about it. It was also when it wasn't happening. You know, 
I would go to bed at night and think about the noise that was going to come the next day, you know. But still, you know, I, w- I would have a sit-in when it was quiet, you know, and I would think, okay, when's it going to start, you know. Any minute now, you know, something's going to come. It was like I could never actually appreciate the spaces between the noise because I was actually quite obsessed with the noise. Then I went to the other one day and I said, you know, how really, really, how do you expect me to meditate with all this? And he said, how can you not? (laughs) This is a good point. Hmm? We actually really start to see how much of our personal identity and self-image is actually tied up with what we're preoccupied with. You know, think about what you might have been preoccupied with today. And actually we see how much of our self-image and identity is tied up with what we obsess about, whether it's lunch or success or failure or approval or, or disapproval. And when we start to dwell on things, it's our thoughts, and dwelling is a word you'll get used to here, you know, we use it a lot. When we start to dwell on things in our, a lot, we start to get actually pretty agitated. And we see how little freedom there is in those conclusions. The Buddha once said that the mind that doesn't obsess doesn't become agitated. The mind that's not agitated is close to freedom. This is something to cultivate. You know, part of wise speech, actually, which is also wise thought, is actually the capacity to say, I don't know. I don't know. To be at ease in not knowing. To be at ease in openness. To be at ease in not concluding. It's one of the greatest gifts of kindness and compassion we can offer to ourselves or others because then nothing is frozen. Nothing is stuck or solidified into an image, not ourselves and not others. So we sit long periods of time. We walk long periods of time. Sometimes we sit with a multitude of kind of obscurations. You know, if we're not restless, we're sleepy. You know, if we're not doubting, we're kind of arguing with ourselves. You know, Our bodies are aching. When they don't seem to be aching, our minds seem to have something else to do. And, you know, we're tempted to conclude that this is really bad news. You know? We're tempted to conclude this is a sign of disaster or or personal unworthiness. And that actually becomes, too, our identity of the moment. How do we know that? How do we actually know that? That disastrous sitting may actually be the sitting where we are learning some of the deepest lessons about patience, compassion, commitment, acceptance, kindness. That sitting that we're tempted to conclude as a disaster may be the very sitting where we are really deeply changing the courses of the mind and heart, where we may be really learning something about surrendering resistance and aversion. That sitting we're so tempted to call a good sitting, mostly because it conforms to our images of what meditation should look like. You know, we start dwelling upon success and progress. We start planning our future as a hermit. How do we know it's a good sitting? How do we really know it's a good sitting? 
You know, maybe it's actually the sitting where we're most reinforcing, grasping and clinging and defining ourselves by the contents of our mind and experience. It's so, it's so liberating to let go of the conclusions, to understand that in this environment, in a retreat, we are actually replaying the tapestry of our life. We're replaying the story of our life over and over and over, and we're not here to get rid of it. We're really here to see what causes pain, what leads to happiness, what confines us, and what liberates us. We're really here to change the course of our mind, to learn to hold no conclusions, to, to rest in not knowing and openness. It's really to open ourselves to learning. It's also to open ourselves to a sense of mystery and wonder, as much as it may terrify us at times to re release our conclusions and definitions as much as it may terrify us to release our, our need to find absolute truth in each encounter, it may also be that in releasing that, we're really discovering what genuine openness and receptivity is. Lesson three. This is a lesson we learn in the first few days of a retreat that really penetrates, actually, to the heart of the, of the center of this teaching and tradition. You know, what did the Buddha teach also is life? That there is unsatisfactoriness. At times there's sorrow, at times there's pain in this life. There is a cause of sorrow. There is an end. And there is a way to the end of sorrow and conflict and struggle. The Buddha taught a lot about dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Now, some of this sorrow, unsatisfactoriness, we might call it, aging, sickness, loss, none of us are exempt from. Having an ageless body, having perpetual pleasure, immortality, and a life of certainty, I'm afraid that these are not options available to any of us. Now, at times we interpret this teaching of Dukkha as, as being sort of very grim, you know, it's grim. Um, actually, it's a teaching of liberation. The Buddha also talked about Dukkha Dukkha, or double Dukkha. This is the unnecessary pain and struggle and conflict and turmoil which is actually optional. That can be released. Dukkha dukkha is what happens when we add the extra layers of aversion, struggle, craving, resistance, judgment upon the simple truth and actuality of each moment. We have a pain in our knee. That's a simple truth. Then we have the story about the pain. Life is unfair. I will never survive this. I need a different body. This is dukkha dukkha. We sit. Sometimes it's pretty unexciting. You know, there's not a lot, it seems, going on. Same thoughts, same feelings, same memories, same images. We've had them before. We are actually often bored with ourselves. This is a simple truth. You know, it's kind of unsatisfactory. 
And then we have our reaction to it, don't we? Oh, I really need something more exciting to happen. You know, maybe if I kind of, you know, screw up my face or really strive hard or, you know, stand on my head, you know, I'll have some kind of breakthrough, you know, or, or we have the story, you know, maybe I'm just a boring person, you know, or that's not why, this is not why I came here, you know, when did the breakthroughs happen? This is dukkha dukkha. We drop our salad in the dining room. It's a simple truth. We have the narrative. We add. You know, what does everybody think of me? Why am I not more mindful? We have this simple act of committing ourselves to silence. And we have the story about it, you know. Why aren't people smiling at me? You know, everybody's so depressed. I'm so self-conscious, you know. Uh, we don't know who we are in the absence of our affirmation. We feel a little uneasy. This is dukkha dukkha. Now, where does really most of the suffering actually live? Does it live in the simple truth of the moment? Or does actually most of the suffering live in the extra layers of the judgment, the narratives, the reactions we bring? And do we really have to suffer? Actually, no. Actually, no. We can learn to release the causes of suffering. We can learn to find profound peace. We can learn to live in harmony with the simple truth of the moment. Craving and aversion create a good deal of agitation in our mind and heart. They compel us into a practice of either always leaning away from where we are, pushing things away, leaning back because we want something different than what is here or craving and aversion compels or, or craving compels us and aversion propels us to lean forward into the next moment we keep whenever we're in the midst of craving and aversion we keep wanting to change the landscape of our lives this practice invites us not always to change the landscape of our lives, but to change how we see. Craving and aversion are actually practices, they're movements of anxiety and separation where we really find little ease and peace. The mind that's caught in wanting and aversion is moving. It's moving all the time. Genuine stillness and receptivity is discovered in learning on a moment-to-moment level really how to be kind within craving and aversion, to be kind to ourselves, to explore them, to be interested in them, to let them be rather than to be pushed. Because when we, we see, when we're caught in the web of either craving or aversion, we don't engage so much in mindfulness practice. We often engage in postponement practice. We hear over and over, and we're encouraged over and over, to be wholeheartedly present. But sometimes we equate being present with the absence of the unpleasant, don't we? Mm-hmm. If I'm present, it means there's nothing unpleasant happening. You know, that's when there's no, un- nothing, no feelings, no sensations, no thoughts we dislike or don't want or are averse to. Sometimes we equate being present with, with you know, a willingness to do that, when there's just pleasant sensations, it's what we like with what we want. And then when we meet the difficult or the demanding or the challenging that's a little sticky for us, we tend to postpone 
being present. We think after this is over, I'll really be present, you know. Once I fix this, then I'm going to be present, you know. Once I've got rid of this emotion or this thought or this image, you know, then I'll be present, you know. When I finally found the magical sitting posture, you know, the pain-free zone, you know, then I'm going to be really present, you know. Or the right lifestyle, the right relationship, surely then I'm really going to be present in my life, you know. Or when I've satisfied this, just this one particular craving, you know, just when I've done just a couple more run-throughs of this fantasy, you know, then I'll surely be present. We may find ourselves waiting for the perfect moment to be present in, but what do we do with a life that doesn't go away? What do we do with a mind that doesn't go away? What do we do with a body and with a heart that doesn't go away? can't postpone. It's not always easy to recognize that this mind and body and heart, no matter what is happening within them, they are no obstacles to peace. They are no obstacles to stillness. Being caught, even aversion and craving, are actually not obstacles to peace. But being caught in aversion and craving and restlessness is actually, does actually get in the way of peace and stillness. You know, because it's a kind of disconnection. Now, I remember once being in a supermarket, you know, shopping, and parallel to me going up and down the aisles, you know, I, I could never see, I never did see them. It was obviously a, a mother pushing her child, and all I could hear, you know, was this plaintive voice saying, Mom, Mom, I really need it. I really, really have to have it. And it got more and more upset and more and more distraught as the aisles went by. Well, we get a little bit more sophisticated with age. You know, we don't exactly cry and wail in the meditation room. But sometimes, you know, there's this same sense of need, of reliance, of this vacuum of fulfillment. I just really need it. I just really need a different body. I really need this to go away. I really need a different tape to play in my mind. You know, I need a different story. Postponement practice means that we turn away from what is. Mindfulness practice means that we learn to surrender postponement. And we acknowledge that perhaps everything that we need for depth, everything we need for sensitivity, everything we need for peace and understanding is going to be found nowhere but the moment that we're in. A little while ago, I was corresponding with a, a yogi who's on death row in Florida. And he wrote to me and he, he said that twice a day, he and a couple of other inmates on death row pull out their zafus and they sit together in the midst of blaring TVs and clanging doors and sometimes deers and, you know, sitting together in the midst of the uncertainty of their own life. And yet they sit together twice a day, every day. And he, he said in his letter, he said, you know, same mind, different place. Same heart, different place. Where else am I going to go? I found that 
you know, so actually very touching. It so much reminded me that being present means being all-embracing. means being inclusive. Finding the willingness to be intimate with the whole spectrum of ourselves, of our lives. Learning to be present in the presence of all things. You know, in this tradition, the story of Prince Siddhartha leaving home, leaving the comfort and the ease and the security of his palace to enter the homeless life is often presented as being the model of renunciation. For many people, I actually feel it's a much greater renunciation to discover what it means to be at home in themselves and in their lives. For many people, it's a great renunciation to really explore what it means to be at home in their bodies, at home in their minds, at home in their hearts. You know, as one person said, well, the greatest source of our unhappiness is not being able to sit for ten minutes alone with ourselves in a room. The very often we practice a kind of unconscious renunciation or an almost unconscious homelessness fleeing from ourselves and our lives into fantasy, into avoidance, into daydreams, into rehearsals of the future, into denial of the present. And in that doing that, we do abandon ourselves. We abandon the present moment. I think for many people to find the willingness to be at home in their life, to be at home in this moment, to renounce the inclination to flee, that this is sometimes the greatest of all renunciations. It's good to remind ourselves that we don't practice to suffer, that we practice to discover a way to end suffering, that in our practice, really what we are doing is cultivating moment to moment a climate of awakening inwardly. And we're learning how to listen, learning how to receive, learning how to befriend and to be intimate with ourselves and with all things. This is both the kindness of mindfulness and it is also the challenge of mindfulness. And both the kindness and the challenge of mindfulness really live side by side. They are actually not so different. But it is a challenge to be present. And it is also the greatest of all kindnesses to be present. This climate of awakening we cultivate inwardly is, is a manifestation of dedication. It happens each time we come back, each time we connect, each time we find that simple willingness to say just this, just this moment, just this thought, just this sound, just this feeling that needs taken care of. And that responsiveness, that resp- inner responsiveness, the inner receiving, the inner willingness to be here is actually the climate in which we awaken. We could have just a couple of moments, quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.